Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. This morning, I invite you to take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of Mark as we begin a new series together. And whenever we start a a new series, it's helpful to review a, a few of the facts about the book we're studying. And the book of Mark, unlike Luke, doesn't give us a whole lot of direct information as far as its author, its context, its uh, recipients. But let's take a minute as you're turning to Mark to review three things we know about this gospel from history. First, we know that this gospel was written by Mark or John Mark, as he's also known in the New Testament. This would be the same Mark who went with Barnabas on his first missionary journey. This would be the same Mark whom Paul later called useful to me in ministry. And this would be the same Mark that was particularly close with Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter calls him my son, Mark. In fact, history tells us that this gospel uh, of Mark that we're about to study is actually the eyewitness testimony of Peter which Mark recorded and wrote down when he was in Rome with Peter near the end of Peter's life in the early 60s AD. So in many ways, as we study this gospel, it's Peter's perspective and Peter's personality that we'll hear coming through. The second thing that church history tells us is that Matthew was the first gospel written during the early years of the church as the gospel was proclaimed to the Jews, and that then Mark and Luke appeared about the same time around Rome and for the Gentile world, and then that John was written last. Now, you should know that a few hundred years ago, scholars decided to try to reconstruct the gospel and the history around the gospels, and since Mark is the shortest of the gospels and is told in a less polished, more eyewitness style, Many determined that Mark must have been written first and that the other Gospels sort of perfected and, and, and built on them. Now, maybe I'm biased as a classics major because I value the writings of ancient writers, or maybe I'm just skeptical of anything cooked up by 19th century German scholars, but I, uh, I tend to side with the early Christian writers who unanimously tell us that Matthew was written first. And then Mark and Luke around the same time, some were aware of Mark first, some of Luke, and then John last. Well, the third thing we know from church history is that unlike Matthew and Luke, who set out to write a biography of Jesus' life, Peter in this gospel is giving us his eyewitness testimony of what he experienced in the ministry of Jesus. So he doesn't start with Jesus' birth. He wasn't there when Jesus was born. He doesn't try to give us a holistic summary of Jesus' teaching and ministry. His goal is to tell us what he saw. It's to give us a testimony of what he experienced. And this gospel really is full of vocabulary that sounds like a man sharing his memories. The stories and the episodes are connected with 
and then this happened, or and immediately this happened. And you can sort of imagine uh, Peter as he's going through his memories saying, yeah, and, and then this happened, and then Jesus did this, and Mark recording what Peter shared. But as he does so, Peter and Mark, as he's writing, come back again and again to the main questions of this gospel, namely, who is Jesus and how should we respond? And Peter's repeated purpose will be to demonstrate that Jesus is the son of God in power who came to take up the cross for the sake of his people. And that in response, we should repent and believe and take up our cross as well. So this is the author, this is the context, this is the theme, if you will, of this gospel. But let's jump in and read together Mark 1, verses 1 through 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased." The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word which you gave, yes, by the hand of Mark and Peter, but inspired by your Holy Spirit, that we might know about your Son, Jesus. Would you draw us to him this morning? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't think any of us really like to wait. That's a fact that Amazon has so deftly exploited, charging us so that we don't have to wait more than two days for anything we want in the world. But of course, as we get older, we're a little better at managing our expectations, but as kids, waiting is just pure torture. It's hard enough for us to figure out the passage of time and how long things take. When you're in the middle of waiting, it's very difficult. You know, growing up, my siblings and I rode with our parents on the 13-hour drive from Ohio to Starkville, Mississippi to visit our grandparents. We did that once or twice a year. I don't know how many times we asked, are we there yet, before we were out of Ohio, but eventually we might sort of settle down into sleep, taking a nap. Maybe we would get into a book or just stop paying attention altogether as the hours and the miles slipped by until all at once we'd see something we recognized. Wait, I've, I've been to that store. 
I remember that landmark. That sign said Starkville, next right. And after all that waiting, we'd realize we were finally almost there. Well, that was our reaction after 12 and a half hours in a car. You can imagine the situation in Israel. After centuries of waiting and longing for the Savior that God had promised, not knowing when he would come, when all of a sudden, the promised signs started appearing. As Mark relates the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the point of these first 15 verses is to say, this is it. The one we've been waiting for is finally here. And as Mark makes this point clear, he describes the identity and the mission of a promised messenger and then the promised Messiah. And I want to look at each of those this morning. So let's start with the promised messenger. After his introductory sentence, Mark immediately reminds us of what God had promised in the Old Testament and what Israel was to be watching for as the first sign that God was about to act. And so he reminds us of what the prophet Isaiah said. Although verses 2 and 3 actually quote both of the two main Old Testament prophecies about this messenger, combining Malachi 3.1 with Isaiah 40 verse 3. And we hear from these two passages that God had promised a messenger who would come in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Well, then Mark immediately adds in verses 4 to 7, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, announcing that after me comes one who is greater than I. In other words, John comes doing exactly what the Old Testament had said he would do, coming in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, we might think that John's uh, clothing style choices and his dietary decisions are a bit unusual for a royal messenger, but even those are intentional. Because you might remember that the prophet Malachi had added that the promised messenger would be like the prophet Elijah. And if we were to go back to First and Second Kings, we would find that Elijah was often in the wilderness And that he was clothed with a garment of hair with a leather belt around his waist. And so even John's clothing and appearance were meant to communicate who he was. This is the promised messenger. The landmark that God's people were supposed to say, oh, I recognize that. The messenger is here. The Messiah is about to arrive. So that's who John was. What about his mission? Well, the Old Testament says that his mission was to prepare the way. In the ancient world, whenever a king would travel through his realm as he was approaching cities and towns, a messenger would go ahead of him to announce in the towns, the king is coming. Because no one would want to be caught unprepared for the king. So the messenger would come, they would say that the king is on his way, and the people would line up ready to receive him and honor him. So that's the first thing John does. He announces, after me comes one who is mightier than I, so that the people would be ready to receive him. But John is not just telling the people the Lord was coming. John also prepares the way for the Lord with a specific message. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all emphasize that the main theme of John's preaching was repentance for sin. His baptism was meant to call people to repent. Now, to repent is literally to change your mind. It is to turn back and adopt new decisions and a new way of life. 
The Greek word makes it very clear that repentance is not feeling bad about what you've done, nor is it an expression of regret. Repentance is an action in which you declare you were wrong and you intend to think and live differently. Now, John would proclaim a need for repentance and call the Jews to be baptized as a sign that they needed cleansing was rather startling. Gentiles who wanted to become part of the Jewish community, who wanted to come and begin to worship the Lord, of course, baptism made sense for them. They were changing their mind, their way of life. But but Jews, for the people of God themselves who had the law and who followed the law and the traditions... To call them to be baptized for repentance, that was bold stuff. But it was precisely this emphasis on repentance that enabled John to prepare the way for the Lord. After all, if I were to run down out of the pulpit this morning into the front row and and maybe go to the Hill family and say, I'm going to save you guys, either right before or after questioning my sanity, they would probably say, well, from what? We seem pretty safe here. What do I need to be saved from? Well, Jesus is about to show up and offer salvation for God's people, but not a salvation from political enemies, a salvation from sin. And if that offer of salvation from sin is going to have any meaning, the people first need to be aware of their sin. Of course, the same is true today. We will never have a proper understanding of the gospel. It's very unlikely that we will be truly converted to follow Christ if we do not have a true understanding of the depth of our sin and our need to be saved. And so John, because his mission was to prepare the way for this kind of Savior, focused his ministry on proclaiming a baptism for the repentance of sin, calling all to come and confess their sin because it's the awareness of sin that will prepare them for the arrival of their Savior. So that's John's actions, his dress, his words that work together to recall the prophecies of old and heighten the people's expectation as he fulfilled his mission to prepare the way for the Lord. When you arrive at verse 9, with John preaching in the wilderness, Luke 3.15 tells us that all the people were in expectation. In other words, they're on the edge of their seat. The signs are, are matching up. Something new is happening here. There, in verse 9, Jesus from Nazareth steps onto the scene. So let's turn next and look at the identity and the mission of Jesus, the promised Messiah. Who exactly was Jesus? Well, Mark announced in verse 1 that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Now, to call Jesus the Son of God is to call him divine, to say that he is on par with God himself. The Jews realized that. That's why then John 10.33, the Jews sought to stone Jesus when he called himself the Son of God. They recognized it as a divine claim. But we see more clues as to the divine nature of Jesus. Verse 3, quoting the Old Testament prophecies, Isaiah had said that John the Baptist would prepare the way of the Lord. Not prepare the way, not prepare the way for the Lord's messenger, Not prepare the way for the Lord's servant, but prepare the way for the Lord. And who does John prepare the way for? For Jesus, which would indicate that Jesus is the Lord. Well, then in verse 8, John announces that one would come after him who will baptize them with the Holy Spirit. 
And the question we should immediately ask is, who but God alone can direct the Holy Spirit or send the Holy Spirit or baptize someone with the Holy Spirit of God? Only God can do that. And not only can God alone do that, but that's exactly what God had promised to do in the Old Testament. God had said to the prophet Ezekiel, I, this is God speaking, I will put my spirit within you on the day that is coming. And to the prophet Joel, the Lord had said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is the thing God said that he would do. And John claims that Jesus is the one mightier than him who will come to baptize them with the Holy Spirit. So all the signs, all the Old Testament prophecies that are coming to point to Jesus point to his divinity, that he is the Lord. But the climax, of course, comes in verses 10 and 11 when Jesus comes up from the waters of baptism, which, of course, he did not need. Jesus did not need to come confessing and repenting of his sin. But here he stood where sinners stood, on their behalf, and said that this he would do to fulfill the law. And as he comes up from the water, the heavens are torn open, and the Spirit descends like a dove. And the voice of the Father says, This is my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And here, in one moment, in one place, we see a visible picture of that divine mystery that is at the core of our faith. God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As the voice of the Father declares the joy and the love that he has for the Son and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, confirming again that Jesus is divine, a second person of the Trinity, the Son of God himself. Now, I don't want to digress too far here, but I do want us to note that these words, this picture of Jesus' baptism, Give us a window into the beauty of our God. Because the Trinity is not a math problem. The Trinity is not one of those confusing, weird doctrines that we accept but shrug our shoulders over. Yes, it is a mystery, but it is also the heartbeat of our joy and our faith. See, God as Father, Son, and Spirit did not exist alone before creation, such that he needed to create in order to have fellowship or to express his love. No, our God as triune existed before an infinite joy and perfect love within himself. And so he created the world and he created a mankind as an outpouring of his goodness and the overflow of his life in order to share love and joy that he already had within himself. And because of his astounding desire to share with us the beauty of the Son and the fellowship together in the Spirit, the triune God agreed to an eternal plan in which the Father would send the Son to the point of death. Not just to execute a legal transaction to cancel our sin, but that we might be redeemed from our folly and our sin and our death and re-welcomed into God's own fellowship and joy that we get a glimpse of in this passage. So when we hear Father say to Son, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased in the fellowship of the Spirit, that's what God is inviting us into, into his fellowship, into his love, into his joy. That is far more than just a mere forgiveness of our sins, and that is a salvation worth pursuing with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. 
So here's Jesus, the Son of God, fulfilling God's promises, revealed in his divine union with the Father and Spirit. But we should notice that Jesus is not only divine, he is also man. He came from Nazareth in Galilee. He didn't just show up. He didn't just magically appear. He was born. He grew up. People knew him. And not only that, but we see his humanity expressed again in verses 12 and 13. As the Spirit, after the baptism of Jesus, leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. See, being tempted is one part of being human. And just as Adam was tempted by Satan in the garden, just as Israel was tempted in the wilderness, so now Jesus comes to represent mankind and he too is tempted in the wilderness by Satan. But this time, as the Spirit leads him and the angels minister to him, Jesus remains faithful so that we have a new representative as mankind. So we arrive at the end of verse 13 and we are left with the one person we so desperately need. A man who has come on our behalf, who is innocent and faithful even through temptation, but one who is also the Son of God, who is divine, the Lord himself, who has arrived on the stage of human history as the long-promised Messiah. Well, that's who Jesus is. What's his mission? Well, I think he tells us there in verses 14 through 15. Now, the mission of Jesus is really going to be explained through the whole gospel of Mark, but you see what Jesus announces there in the last verse of our passage. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. See, Jesus' mission was to declare that the sovereign God had been working his plan out perfectly over the pages of human history. And through those years, as the sovereign God was working, his plan had now reached its climactic moment, the one he had long been foretelling. The time is now fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. What do we mean by the kingdom of God? When we talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God refers to that place where God is, where his rule is a reality, where God's presence exists and where he holds sway. And Jesus, the Son of God, the one in our passage, has come as the Lord himself. The presence of God has arrived. And he brings the rule of God because Jesus is the one of whom God had said in Psalm 2, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So in Jesus, the presence of God arrives. The act of rule and reign of God's own king has arrived. And they have arrived not in a boundary, not in a sort of physical area. They've arrived in a person, in the person of Jesus. So if we would come to the kingdom of God if we would find our rest in the kingdom of God, we need to come to a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And it will take the rest of this gospel to clarify this and spell out what this means. But that's Jesus' mission, to announce the kingdom of God is at hand. It has arrived in me and in my person. Well, how should we respond? Well, Jesus tells us, if you're going to be part of this kingdom, you must repent and believe. To repent, of course, is to turn from something. It's to turn from our sins. It's to turn from our current way of life and our self-focus and self-determination. And to believe tells us what we're to turn to. We're to turn to belief that Jesus is the Son of God, 
the long-awaited Messiah, and to trust him alone for salvation. So it's these two that belong together, to repent, to turn from our sin and ourselves, and to believe, to turn to the Son of God himself. So here in these 15 verses, we find that in the first century A.D., the promised messenger arrived who declared that the Lord himself was about to come. And we find that this messenger pointed all Israel to Jesus of Nazareth as the fulfillment of God's promises of salvation. And we find that Jesus, who came as a man, but also the Son of God, anointed by the Holy Spirit of God, approved by the voice of God his Father, has announced that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom has come in him, so repent and believe. That's who Jesus was, and that's what he calls us to do this morning. Before we end, by way of application, I want to draw your attention to two things that I don't want us to miss this morning. The first is the importance of repentance. Do you notice that when John the Baptist shows up, the first thing he declares is a call to repent? And do you notice that when Jesus shows up on the scene, the first thing he does is call people to repent? Clearly, repentance is of primary importance. Now, there may be some here this morning, of course, who believe in God and who, who recognize that they need God's help, but are still finding their hope or their assurance primarily in what we have done and living honorably in the way we've helped others. And we've never fully recognized or repented of relying on ourselves or seen the depth of the sinfulness that is behind the mistakes we all know that we make. Perhaps others here believe in God and know that they need God's forgiveness, but they are presuming that God's grace covers our sins if we believe in him, and so they've not seen any urgency in repenting and changing the direction of our hearts and our lives. And so if you find yourselves in one of those categories this morning, I would urge you to repent. The kingdom of God has come. The final day to accept that invitation is closer now than it was then. So repent and believe the good news that Jesus offers for salvation. But we have to remember also that this repentance does not mean that we will cease to sin in this life. Even as we turn against sin and that initial repentance of turning to the Lord, the sinfulness of our flesh continues to rear its head day by day. And because of that, repentance must also remain a priority for every believer on this side of heaven. Now, let me just clarify for a minute what I mean by repentance. By repentance, I don't mean generally telling God, I know I sin, so please forgive me. You know how much good that does when someone who has hurt you comes to you and says, well, if I've done anything that hurts you, please forgive me. That's fairly ineffective. Because no, it is specific sins of our hearts and lives that are an offense to God. It is specific sins of our lives that are decisions to rebel against him. And we are called to diligently repent for our specific sins, to pray that God would show us those sins, that we might repent of them in the presence of Christ. Nor, we would have to add, nor is repentance a matter of feeling bad or trying hard. See, these are two counterfeits of repentance that would rob us of the joy of true repentance. 
Because we can be tempted to think that if we feel bad enough about our sins and about what we did, that must be demonstrating repentance. But feeling bad about our sins is only keeping our eyes focused on ourselves. And feeling bad about ourselves can actually be an expression of our own pride. As we can't believe we messed up and we can't imagine what they think of us for, for messing up. Repentance is also not a matter of trying hard. We can be tempted in fits of extra Bible reading or church attendance or helping others to demonstrate that we're really sorry for what we did, forgetting that we can never pay for our sins. See, repentance will always and only be an honest confession to God of the specific sins we have committed and of their violation of his will, followed by a steady gaze at the blood of Jesus Christ, which gives us a genuine assurance of his full forgiveness and of restored fellowship with us as we make that decision, holding these things before him, to turn and live differently to the best of our ability as we rely on him. One pastor wrote this. He said, Repentance is not always pleasant. Praying that God would show us our sin and confessing our sins specifically is not always a fun thing to do, but it is a fountain of life, bringing us the joy of a clear conscience and of a deepening fellowship with Christ. I would add personally that at several points in my life, I have had seasons of prayer focused specifically on repentance asking God to show me my sin and repenting of that sin and looking at Christ's forgiveness. And that has been a significant source of joy for me. And yet, despite my own experience, I still neglect it so often. And I would encourage all of us, John and Jesus begin by calling us to the life-giving priority of repentance. Would we give our time in prayer to asking the Lord to show us our sin? Just confessing it specifically before him and then turning our gaze on Jesus Christ that we might know the joy of assurance of his forgiveness and of restored fellowship with our God. But finally, I don't want our hearts to miss one ounce of the glory of Jesus as we meet him in this passage. See, he is presented in these opening verses in all of his greatness and his divine power. He is not just a friend who saves. He is not just someone who answers when we call. He is the divine majesty. He is the Son of God, the Lord himself, and human flesh who draws near to us to baptize us with the Holy Spirit of God to remake us and recreate us. And he is worthy of all of the worship that we could offer. But Jesus is not only here in all of his greatness and his majesty. He is also here as God's beloved son. And so the father looks down on him and says, This is my beloved son. Of you I am well pleased. And this son of God, this beloved son, is now here to bring us with him into this same joy, into this same fellowship with the triune God. You know, I'm fairly confident in this life that I could go to anyone, whether it's a landscaper in my neighborhood or Jeff Bezos, and if I'm coming with his son at his son's invitation, I am going to find acceptance. But how much more, how much more when God's plan from before the foundation of the world was that we might be adopted as his sons if we come through faith 
and His Son. How much more if we come by faith in Jesus will we too hear those same words? You are my beloved Son and you I am well pleased. Because we are invited into that fellowship by the Son of God Himself as we come with Him through faith. That is who Jesus is and that is what He has come to offer us. So see, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand in the person of Jesus. The question is, have you repented and believed in this great news? Let's pray. Our God, how we thank you for the gospel, for the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entered human history, fulfilling all of the promises across the pages of Scripture, bringing the time to fulfillment over the pages of history. That he came as the Lord himself, as a man, that he might represent us, and that he might take the penalty of death in our place, and that he might now invite us, if we would repent and believe in him, to come with him into that great, beautiful, glorious fellowship of love and joy with Father, Son, and Spirit. Oh, may we see the beauty of this salvation. Oh, may we see the glory of what is offered to us in Jesus Christ. And may we repent of our sin. May we repent of living for ourselves or our own way. And we believe in Jesus Christ. And may this pattern of repentance be an ongoing source of life and joy and renewed fellowship with our Savior for each of us. Now I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit. Westminster Pulpit.